is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to JudoCast. It's Thanksgiving weekend here in the United States, and many people are on the road, headed out to visit family and friends, and and many of us are just laying low for the week. So this week, we're super fortunate to have quite a few things to discuss in the world of judo. We just finished up the Continental Championships in both the Pan American Union and the European Union last weekend. So in today's show, we're going to uh, discuss those tournaments uh, and the Olympic run. The general public looks at the Olympics as this prestigious sporting event that takes place every four years, but for athletes, as we know, it's it's much more. It's often a lifetime of effort and dedication. It's years of sacrifice that many people are willing to make, even with the low odds of success. But what is success? Is it making the team? Is it getting a medal? Is it becoming an Olympic champion? Or is it really about the journey? Today, we're going to take a closer look at the Olympic races happening all over the world. It's exciting times for all kinds of athletes. And as fans of judo, if we look a little closer, we can see some of these stories unfold right in front of us. We'll start off by talking about the Continental Championships last weekend and the importance of fighting for a seated position at the Olympics. I'm also going to talk about the big super fight coming up in a couple of weeks. And at the end, I'm going to tell you who has the highest odds of getting a medal at next year's Olympics in Tokyo. We're also going to talk a little bit about athlete development as we look at ways to get Olympic medals in the future. Let's jump right into it. So last weekend, we had both the Pan Ams and the European Championships. I spent quite a bit of time watching the European tournament. As you can imagine, the quality of the event is not really comparable to the Pan American event, but that's not really news. It's it's always been that way. The European Union is just super strong with a lot more countries involved with bigger judo programs. So not all of the top-ranked athletes attended, but it seemed like a vast majority of them were in attendance in most categories. And as a whole, the event was pretty amazing. A few standout observations when it came to the women's tournament, um, the French were super dominant. They ended with seven medals, five of which were gold. And for the men, the French only got one medal, which was a bronze in the men's 66. Um, Other ladies that stood out was the German team. They had a great day with uh, four medals, including a silver and three bronze. The men's divisions were dominated by Russia and Georgia. Um, I think that's no surprise to most of us, but each of those countries finished with six medals. For the Russians, it was three gold and three silver And the Georgians weren't far behind with one gold, a silver, and four bronze. So right now, everyone around the world has the Olympics on their mind. This is the tail end of the Olympic run for hundreds of athletes all around the world. And qualification strategies and plans for physical peaking have all got a little bit more complicated because of COVID. With that being said, there's some super interesting races happening right now all over the place in pretty much every category. And the one that most people look at is just the qualifications in general. You know, how do I crack the top 18 to guarantee a spot? So qualification alone 
is a little bit more clear on what needs to be done. But the other more exciting race that I find is between these top-level athletes that are representing the same country, both of which that might be qualified based on IJF points. So the rule says if multiple athletes from one country are both qualified, the country will decide on which player gets to go. And that process differs from around the world. And uh, this weekend, I was watching some of those races unfold. As far as individuals go, there were lots of great matchups at the European Championships. And I'm just going to go through a couple of matches that I found interesting or some of the results that I think will turn out to be quite significant when it comes to Olympic qualifications. There is a super good Olympic race happening right now within the 60-kilogram division for the Russian team between 31-year-old Robert Mishvobadze and 23-year-old Yago Abeladze. No matter who gets the call to fight next summer, I think either one of these guys are going to be a contender for a medal, but only one of them is going to get to go. So these guys are both in the top eight on the Olympic qualification lists, and they have a one-and-one record against each other right now. The European final was actually a rematch of the Grand Slam in Hungary from last month. And you would think that these guys know each other really well, that the match might be boring, but it was quite the opposite. It's a super exciting match to watch. Abuladze is a taller player with big grips. He's going over the top. He attacks both right and left. It's one of those matches where you just know something's going to happen. And this time the win went to the more experienced Mishvobadze who did a really good job of capitalizing on all the small mistakes that were made by his opponent. And this match is worth going back to watch if you haven't seen it. 66 kilos was all about Orkan Safarov of Azerbaijan. He got a little bit of an awkward start in the first round. He was up against the number one seed, uh, the Italian Manuel Lombardo, but Lombardo ended up with a Hansokomaki when he turned a Sode against the elbow. So Safarov took full advantage of that gift, and he kept on going. He went four more rounds into the final where he took on the Israeli Tal Flicker. And Safarov takes that win in the final, leaving Flicker with a silver on the day, and now in a super tightly contested race for the Olympic team within Israel with his uh, fellow countryman Baruch Shmelov. So from my understanding, the Olympic berth is going to go to whichever athlete is in the points lead when it comes to the end of the qualification period. So that one's going to be interesting in the coming months. 73 kilos, we had an unpredicted winner of the Europeans with Victor Serpu of Moldova, who captured his country's first ever European title. And the week prior, he won the under 23 Europeans as well. So Prior to this win, he was sitting just outside of the Olympic qualification zone, and now he is more than likely to have secured his position for Tokyo. So he had wins against the uh, former Olympic Games champion, both Fabio Basile of Italy and Lasha Shavdatashvili of Georgia. So Serpu is coming into form with great timing headed into Tokyo. Another up-and-coming athlete in the 73 kilos that caught my attention was the Swiss fighter Nils Stump. He won his pool, but then he lost the semifinal against the eventual champion, and then he lost the bronze contest against Orujab, the superstar athlete out of Azerbaijan. But uh, Nils Stump is looking good, and I think he's somebody to keep your eye on in the coming months at different qualifications and uh, hope to see a good performance from him next summer in Tokyo as well. 81 kilos, which is arguably one of the most competitive weight categories in the world. And in Europe, it's been pretty predictable lately, at least in recent years. You know, top athletes like DeWitt, Kase, 
Ivanov, Mookie, and, and the Georgian fighters are seeming to find themselves consistently in the medal rounds. And this weekend was really no different. Notable athletes missing. Sagi Mookie was not there. Um, the top two ranked German athletes also were not there. And then strangely enough, there's three athletes from Russia who are currently ranked in the qualification zone for the Olympics were all three missing. So there was no Russians in the draw for 81 kilos. The star of the day was the 20 year old Tato Grigashvili of Georgia who won the gold medal. He also won the gold medal the prior week at the under 23 Europeans as well. So that included a quarterfinal win against his teammate, Luka Mazuradze, who claimed one of the other bronze medals. So Mazuradze actually won the previous two matches that they had fought. And this is an Olympic race for 81 kilos in Georgia that you got to keep your eye on. These two are both young athletes that are getting better and better at each event. Moving on to the women's divisions, 48 kilos was super interesting. We saw a new champion from France in Shireen Bokli with a win over Andrea Stojadidov of Serbia. This was actually a rematch from the um, bronze medal contest last month in Hungary as well. Last time, Bokli settled for no medal, and today it was gold. So she had a win in the quarterfinal against number one seed Krasniki of Kosovo. That was a huge win for her. This win boosts her into the 11th spot for Olympic qualifying, but she still sits a handful of spots away from her teammate, Melanie Clement, who settled for a fifth in uh, last weekend's event at the Europeans. So this will make Olympic selection a little bit complicated for France at 48 kilos. I'm not sure how they handle these situations, if it's purely a points race or if there's going to be some kind of fight off. To note, world superstar Daria Beloted was missing from the draw this year. And as far as Olympic races, the youngster from Serbia, Andreas Ojadinov, is now in Olympic qualifying position, but she trails another Serbian fighter who's about 600 points ahead of her. So there's something I found worth mentioning here. When most people around the world are having a hard time getting mat time due to COVID, Stojadinov has had 17 fights on the European tour in the last month alone. And here's how that's possible. October 23rd, she got a bronze medal in Hungary at the Grand Slam, five matches. November 4th, gold medal at the European Junior Judo Championships with four matches. November 9th, bronze medal at the Under-23 European Championships, four matches. November 19th, just last weekend, she topped it off with a silver medal at the Senior Europeans with four matches. So there's a lot to be said for getting out there and getting some fights. If you're following the women's 70 kilogram division, you'll know that the French are doing super well here. They hold both the first and second spots on the IGF point roster. So 70 kilograms is going to be a very tight race to determine the French representative for Tokyo next summer. This year's European title went to Margot Pinois, but her teammate Maria Gaihe was able to capture the bronze to maintain her world ranking number one spot with Pinois closely behind in the second position. 78 kilo plus had a bit of a surprise winner with the unseated French player Romain Dico capturing the gold medal to put herself into a potential Olympic race with her teammate Annie Byro, who sits just a couple of positions ahead of her on the roster. So there's a lot of good stories unfolding in Europe, even with the limited amount of time left in the Olympic qualification period. On the other side of the planet, the Pan American Union was hosting its championships event in Guadalajara, Mexico. In a single event, they hosted the cadet, junior, and senior championship, which seems like a great idea. You know, having three events seems to work out really well. I've always thought USA Judo should do the same with the Junior Olympics, the Senior Nationals, and the veterans. I know there would be some logistical and organizational challenges, but I think that we could put together an event with 
2,000 plus competitors in one weekend. And I think it would be a great way to promote this sport. This could be a great way to possibly attract more vendors and possibly even more sponsors. So anyways, that's a completely different conversation that could take on all kinds of different directions. So unfortunately, COVID pretty much killed the Pan American tournament, more so for the younger kids, which makes sense. There really is nothing at stake. So many countries decided not to risk sending teams and the overall participation was horrendous. You know, especially in the cadet and junior divisions, the cadet tournament had a total of 39 athletes across 16 divisions. Juniors was a little bit better and it seems like the Americans did very well. So I'm super proud to see the young American athletes out there doing well in the Pan American Union. As far as the senior event, most countries were in attendance, but the U.S., Brazil, and Mexico were the only countries that pretty much brought full teams. And quite a few of the top athletes from different countries were not in attendance. So as I suspected, this turned out to be a really good opportunity for some of the lower-ranked athletes to pick up arguably some of the easiest points on the planet when it comes to Olympic qualifications. As far as making points progress, the Americans fared pretty well. Although nobody was able to capture gold, the American team did come home with three silver and three bronze, which is uh, not a bad day. So in the men's divisions, 60 and 66 kilo divisions were won by the Brazilian athletes, Eric Takabatake and Daniel Karjanin, both of which are top 10 athletes on the IJF ranking list. So American Adonis Diaz picked up some much needed points, capturing a silver medal in the 60 kilogram division. And this puts him right back in the hunt for an Olympic berth. So that was super awesome to see. The Canadians were showing their depth at 73 kilos as the number two ranked Canadian athlete Antoine Bouchard captured gold. This was his sixth Pan American medal between 66 kilos and 73 kilos. Uh, Silver medalist Eduardo Barbosa secured some points that will also put him into a possible Olympic berth. 81 kilos saw Puerto Rican athlete Adrian Gandia capture his first major medal, putting him into really good position for a possible Olympic berth. 90 kilos, um, as always, was a very competitive division. Small numbers, but really strong fighters. The eventual champion was uh, Philippe Silva Morales of Cuba, who is currently number two on the IGF ranking list. His win in the finals was over former junior world champion Rafael Mercedo of Brazil. And Colton Brown of the United States boosted his Olympic ranking with a bronze medal as well. The 100-kilogram division was also very small, but it was very competitive. This year's title went to the Canadian rising star Shadi El Mahas with a uh, final win over Brazilian Rafael Buscarini. Uh, El Mahas is looking to be in great form headed into his first Olympic Games next summer in Tokyo. In the women's division, 48-kilogram uh, Olympic champion Paula Peralta snagged her fifth Pan American title. She's now got 12 Pan American medals, which is pretty impressive. 52 kilograms, Ekaterina Guica of Canada takes her sixth Pan American medal, but this time it was gold for the first time, putting her into a pretty good position as she moved up the Olympic rankings by about six spots to what seems like a pretty comfortable position to qualify for a ticket to Tokyo. 57 kilos was the story of 38-year-old Miriam Roper of Panama, who captured her country's first ever Pan American title. She was a former uh, world championship bronze medalist when representing Germany back in 2013. So she's a, a dual citizen that started representing Panama in 2017. 
And in the finals, she took on Leilani Akiyama, who also added some much-needed points as she's working her way up the IJF roster as well. 63-kilogram title was taken by Catherine Butcherman-Pernard, who added a gold medal to her six other Pan American medals. And Alicia Gallus of the United States finished in third. 78 kilograms was Vanessa Chala of Ecuador, who fought American Nefeli Papadakis in the final. And these points were huge for Nefeli, bumping her up slightly in her Olympic qualifications as well. So big congrats to the American athletes. You know, we had silver medals for Adonis Diaz, Nefeli Papadakis, and Leilani Akiyama. And bronze medals for Colton Brown, Alicia Gallus, and Chantel Wright. And these medals were huge boost for some of these athletes. And for several of them, it puts them in position for a very legitimate chance at qualifying for the games next summer. There's going to be one last chance at Pan American points in 2021. The Pan American championships are going to be held in Argentina sometime in spring as the final qualifier prior to Tokyo. The Olympic run, as many of the insiders call it, is this big time in an athlete's life. It's a time where the best athletes in the world make a decision to sacrifice other things in life and chase what's often, I guess, a childhood dream. The dream to become an Olympian or the dream to get an Olympic medal or the dream to become an Olympic champion for some. The Olympic run comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And for everyone, it involves years of practice, dedication, sacrifice. I've heard conversations from people who speak in a negative way for people who just want to make the team. Are there people out there that just want to make the team? Of course there are. Um, Everybody wants to get a medal, but as a realist, some people know that making the team is more than likely the pinnacle, and there's nothing wrong with that dream. Everyone can't get a medal. In fact, we actually know that most people won't. And until, as a country, we can get our act together by putting together some programs and systems in place that will help guide people in their journey, we're in no position to judge their goals or compare them to athletes of the past. And nobody should ever be in a position to decide the worthiness of someone else's sense of accomplishment. We can't raise the standard and expectation for outcome without providing the tools of success that these athletes need. I've seen people that live depressed after they've got a silver medal at the Olympics. I've seen people on the award stand that that don't even want to put the medal around their necks. So we have to ask ourselves, who defines success? Are you more successful and ultimately more happy because you made the team or you got an Olympic medal? What if you lost in the first round? What if you took fifth? What if you won a gold medal and you realized a couple of days later that society doesn't really care so much about your dream? You know, it hits you like a ton of bricks. I think every athlete goes through this in some ways. You know, the day you retire, you start to find something like what's your new passion going to be? And you realize that overnight, you're going to have to pursue other ventures. And and hopefully you have another skill set, something that's going to allow you to fall back and have the ability to provide for yourself and your family. We know the playing field isn't equal and we know life's not fair. I was looking at some of the Olympic runs, some that I just spoke about. And as I'm looking at the rosters, there's upwards of 25 athletes that are ranked in the top eight in the world that are not going to get a chance to represent their their countries at the Olympics. There's world champions that aren't going to make the Olympic team next summer. And there's also athletes in less than competitive situations that will make the Olympic team multiple times. So there's people out there that struggle to get a medal at the American national championships in judo that are arguably much better than some people who are Olympians. We know that opportunities are not created equal. Some people are from countries with zero judo budget. 
Some people live really far away from the judo epicenters of the world. Some people are from countries where they have so many Olympic medals that yours may not mean much. Others are from rare places where an Olympic medal may set you up for life. All of these things combined are what dictates the amount of investment and sacrifice that an athlete is willing to make in their athletic endeavors. There's always questions, you know, do I train full time and not go to school? Should I move to Japan? Should I stay in Europe for half the year? Maybe I can fly training partners in so I can stay home and work while I train. These are all questions that athletes and coaches ask themselves on a regular basis. My views on the Olympic run come from personal experience. I took part in what would be considered, I guess, two Olympic cycles. Prior to 2000, I was ranked anywhere from number two to number five, several of us going back and forth behind Jimmy Pedro, who was the 1999 world champion. At that time, USA Judo thought it would be best to not have an Olympic trials for the 2000 team. And they simply used the national ranking list at the end of 1999 to select the team for 2000. So the Olympic team was able to travel the world as a team preparing with no pressures of an Olympic trials. And 2000 was a tough year for American athletes. 1972 in Munich and 2000 in Sydney were the only two Olympic games where the U.S. team was unable to bring a medal home. So looking back on my competitive career, I gave it my all. I worked harder and longer than most. I was driven for years by the love of the game. I truly loved doing judo every day. For me, it wasn't hard to go to practice every day. I enjoyed it. I got off work. I rushed to judo Monday through Friday. I felt like a professional judo player because that's where 100% of my mind was at. So from 1995 to 2000, I was a full-time college student with a part-time job doing judo six days a week. From 2000 to 2008, I had a full-time job and I was still training judo five nights a week plus physical training four mornings a week. I did that for eight years. In 2002 and 2003, I won the Pan American Championships, and at that point, I think I fell into some box, and USA Judo gave me $500 a month as a stipend and maybe paid for three or four trips that year. The funding lasted maybe five months, and that was about it for my whole career. So the only reason I was able to do judo at the level I did is because of the support I received from San Jose State. So my job at the time was enough to pay my expenses and fund my retirement account. But coaching at San Jose State gave me an extra like $20,000 a year that allowed me to travel the world to train and compete. So my Olympic runs were in 2004 and 2008. I really had a great chance of making the team during that eight-year period. During my career, I had some great events. I had some great matches. I had wins against world and Olympic medalists. I won the Pan American Championships twice, and I think I have 10 medals from the U.S. Nationals. So overall, I look back at my career as a pretty amazing time in my life. Are there things that I would change looking back? Maybe. I don't really have complaints. I mean, I did the best I could, and I fell short both times at the Olympic trials. Closest I came was in 2008 when I won the eight-person bracket. I beat Ryan Reeser in the final. Ryan was one of my rivals for a long time. Since he was number one going into the event, we had to come back later on that same evening. So it was a couple of hours later and he beat me in the two out of three fight off. So I know the pain of being extremely close and then missing out on an Olympic experience. It's a pain that takes a long time to get over. 
and it never completely goes away. I just can't seem to live in the past. I'm one of those people that feels that my best days are always in front of me. I would have loved to go to the Olympics. Even without a medal, I think it would have given me this huge sense of accomplishment to show for all the years of work that I put in. But in pursuing that dream, I learned along the way that this was a sport that I wanted to be involved with. I wanted to be part of it for the rest of my life. And there's many parts of our judo journey. Within a few years of my retirement from competition, I started teaching judo. I grew my dojo to be one of the largest judo clubs in the United States while employing judo coaches and making a positive difference in the lives of hundreds of students every month. And I think that's a win for me and a win for judo in the United States. So the Olympic run will always have the potential to present exciting stories, you know, big or small. These are the stories that build judo. And now we have these races around the world that are between these very high caliber athletes. You know, aside from the several that I mentioned earlier, there's a couple more worth talking about. Here in North America, we have a race that I think most people are paying attention to, and that's in the women's 57 kilogram division. Canada has shown huge dominance in this category with the world champion Krista Deguchi, who's actually a dual citizen that started representing Canada after 2016. So she's currently the 2019 world champion, but she's recently been overtaken on the points roster by her teammate, Jessica Klimkate. So I confirmed with the national office in Canada that there will be a fight off. The exact date, I don't think they've decided yet, but just to note, they have faced each other five times and all five wins have gone to Deguchi. But as athletes, we all know in sport, anything can happen on any given day, especially if it's just one match. So this brings me up to the biggest fight that judo fans around the world are intrigued with. And I think it's doing big things in Japan to promote the sport. Japan has announced that there is going to be a single fight taking place on December 13th at the Kodokan between Hifume Abe and Joshi Moriyama. I get a little nervous just thinking about the kind of pressure that's going to be on these two guys leading into that match. You know, Moriyama is the 2019 world champion Abe is the 2017 and the 2018 world champion. In the last three years, they've faced each other, I think, four times on the IGF circuit with two wins apiece. So they're pretty even on paper. And this event's going to be televised in Japan on the 13th. One fight, one winner, and one Olympian. I, I can't wait to see it. So there's one points race that happens all of the time, but it's rarely discussed because most people are just intrigued with those who qualify for the Olympics. But I think it's safe to assume those on the inside know the importance. And my, myself, until I did a little research, I don't think I would have expected the numbers to be so clear. The race I'm talking about is the race to the top eight. And this is something that maybe the people in the top 12 or maybe 15, these athletes are shooting for this. And the reason the top eight is important is known to most, but they seed the top eight athletes at the Olympics. So theoretically, the number one seed will make it all the way to the quarterfinal before they face the number eight seed at best, setting up a semifinal against the number four seed, and the number two and three seed would be on the other side. Most coaches are experts at this stuff, but surprisingly, I run into a lot of people, even in the judo world, who don't really understand these brackets that well. So I came across a study out of the University of Sao Paulo that was authored by Emerson Fracini and none other than judo superstar from Brazil, Leandro Galero, who has two Olympic medals of his own. You can uh, find the link to the study in my show notes at judocast.com. 
or on whatever podcast app you're listening to. But the title of the paper is Be Seated or Not to Be Seated, a study with Olympic judo athletes. And if you like stats, I think you're really going to like this one. Um, I'm nowhere near a stats expert, but the way I read it is that athletes that are seated, meaning the top eight in the Olympic Games, end up taking about 88% of the medals. I guess there's a few different ways you can look at the results, but the stats are showing that unseated athletes are having a super difficult time getting onto the medal stand. Of our American athletes in 2016, 67% of our seated athletes came home with a medal. And in 2012, 100% of our athletes that were seated came home with a medal. So however you want to look at it, take a look at the study for yourself. But for every seven medals awarded, six of them are going to go to seated athletes. So we all know how difficult it is to not only make Olympic teams, but to get Olympic medals. And that seems to be the topic of conversation in pretty much every national governing body. You know, how do we get more medals? Here in the United States, we have a lot of people who seem to have a lot of conversations about the so-called golden era of judo, where American athletes and some teams fared pretty well on the international stages. For many reasons, it's not a very fair comparison. As judo around the world grows, the quest for Olympic gold is going to become more and more difficult. And let's face it, we're living in a world that's not comparable to anything in the 70s, 80s, or even the 90s for that matter. Judo didn't become an Olympic sport officially until 1972. And there were five Olympic Games between 1972 and 1992, two of which were largely boycotted. So as far as the Olympics go, 1992 was the last time the former Soviet Union participated in the games as like a unified nation. And that so-called one Russian athlete in the draw in 1992 became 15 athletes in 1996. In fact, there were even more. The 1996 saw the introduction of 24 new countries that made their Olympic debut. The Soviet Union, as we all know, was very dominant in sport in general. And we now see high levels of success in many of the former Soviet republics especially in the sports of judo and wrestling. So couple this with the growing judo programs in many of the Eastern European countries, as well as strong programs in places like Israel and Mongolia. The competitive landscape in judo on a world level has changed drastically in the last 30 years. So who should be funding Olympic dreams? Is it parents, nonprofits, government agencies, the USOC? After all, it's a super personal goal to try to become an Olympian. And the sheer size of judo in our country makes for pretty small amounts of money that are involved in our world. So where should the funding that we do have be directed? The USOC is in the business of producing medals, and there's a specific dollar value on those medals. And USA Judo, as an extension of the USOC, has to be in that same business. Could they do a better job of athlete identification and athlete development? Honestly, I don't think they do either of those things. They may cut a check every so often or reimburse some athletes for some trips, but to my knowledge, there's very little being done or even attempted to be done in the areas of athlete identification and athlete development. So we all need to understand that funding for USA Judo or funding from USA Judo rather needs to be directed at people that are actually medal contenders. And I know some people may think that that sounds unfair, but the primary business for the USOC is to get Olympic medals. It's not about grassroots development. I know that's part of it, but that's not the primary objective, and that's not where the money comes from. 
I think the problem arises when NGBs want some sort of control over the athletes. But until we're in a position to fund athletes, we're going to have a hard time telling them what they can and can't do. Once your funding is in place, you can start creating mandates with criteria and programming. Trying to get people to buy into any program that's not attached to some sort of funding is always going to be a hard sell. So the age-old question is going to remain is, who is a medal contender? What athletes get support and which ones don't? This is where things are going to get political. And in the current model, the development money is given to athletes, I think, more as a reward for getting to a certain level. You know, the part that's missing is how we get athletes into a pipeline to get to that level. There's very little being done to help athletes get to the position where they can start to get funding. And developing that pipeline is really where we need to start. Olympic runs, or at least the fostering of the desire to become an Olympian or to have an Olympic run, should start with our teens. So what can we do to get more medals? We need to start focusing our money and our energy on 2028. Our plan needs to be seven or eight years out. If things fall into place four years early and we can get some medal contenders in 2024, that would be amazing. But it's vital to the future of American Judo to start building a pipeline of 2028 athletes right now. At this point, it's actually a lot of fun reaching out to all of the athletes that have potential. Our focus is on 14 to 19-year-olds. Let's take five kids from each category on the U.S. national points roster for both cadet and IJF divisions. 14 fighters for your 2028 Olympic team are highly likely to come out of this list. We take all 150 kids and we put their names on the wall at the national office. You find out where these kids live. Where do they train? You start to develop regional training camps that are specifically designed for those kids. You get a regional coach that works with the national coach. If that coach doesn't like working for the national coach, that's no problem. You find someone who does. Now we have a goal and we get our best people to work on fundraising to help support these programs. I know it's oversimplified, but historically, we've not attempted to develop anything as far as long-term plans go. We've only identified kids after they've competed and committed their lives to the sport of judo. The under-23 program is great, and it's necessary, but I think the focus on that age group shouldn't start for another four years from now. Let's put a huge emphasis on our teenagers starting today. It's a group that, as a sport, we've always struggled with, so the growth potential is huge. Growing that program is what we need to do right now. So what can you do? What can you do at your local judo club? Grow your base. Do the best you can to professionalize your judo program and double the size of your dojo in the next two years. It's doable. If we grow judo club by club, there will naturally be more money in our ecosystem. That money is going to help support these development programs, programs that your kids in your community are going to benefit from. We just need to make sure that the development is not just cutting a check. You know, money's always nice, but spreading small amounts of money all over the place in hopes of buying a medal is the wrong approach. Medals do cost money. We know that. But more than the money is effort. If we're not willing to put the effort the work, the energy, and the time into building some programs, the medals won't come. There's fierce competition around the world for Olympic medals, and some countries are doing more than we are. We can't sit around and wait for the next anomaly athlete, or even worse, complain and tell stories of how things used to be. We can't claim we have all the answers because we clearly don't. There's nobody with the answers, and there's no program in the United States that has a solid history of creating Olympic-level medal contenders from the ground up. It's going to take a village to build judo in this country, and there's lots of reasons to believe that Olympic gold in judo for the United States is going to become more and more difficult as time goes by. 
An increasing number of countries seem to give higher value and more investment dollars to pursue Olympic judo medals. We need to start somewhere. Right now, we have about four athletes that are in a pretty good position to qualify for the Games next summer. The highest-ranked athlete we have is Angelica Delgado for the women at number 15 and Colton Brown for the men currently ranked at number 22. I'm arguably one of the biggest fans of judo. I want nothing more than American athletes to do well, but the odds of getting a medal are slim. Of course, anything can happen in judo. Sometimes the best stories are when unseated athletes come through with a big win. One big win is one thing, but if you want to get a medal at the world-level events, especially the Olympics, you have to show the ability to have some consistency when fighting the top eight athletes. Right now, we don't have anyone on the team that has been able to get wins against any of the top athletes. The Olympic brackets are small. For men, they're smaller than they were in 2016, and there's no easy rounds unless you get lucky with maybe a small nation wildcard. For 2021, we do what we're doing. We show as much support as we can for our athletes, and we make sure that we can get them to peak on the right day and give it their all. Another thought on the Olympic experience, some of the most memorable moments in Olympic days for the United States are not in the finals. Even if a person can't make the finals or the medal rounds, they can often change who does. For American athletes, at least three different times, they've faced top athletes in the first round of the Olympics. Leo White defeated Vanderwall in 1988, ruining his day. Stefan Trenu was the number one seed in 1992. Leo White also took him out. 2008, number one Japanese player in 60 kilos, Hiraoka. He was beaten by Taraji Murray-Williams in the first round. It's judo. Anything can happen, and we hope that our team can replicate some of these amazing Olympic upsets. So when it comes to the Olympic run, athletes are living in these four-year hyper-focused cycles. I think it becomes a fine line of balance, you know, putting enough singular focus on your sport to allow you to reach the levels of greatness that you desire, while not sheltering yourself from the reality of the world that you're going to be in the day you retire from judo. So choosing to chase your dreams and commit yourself to a lifetime of training that's capped off with a four-year or an eight-year commitment to this ultra-focused training and sacrifice is an honorable pursuit. But the importance of understanding that judo is more than sport is vital to your mental health and life after sport. There's nothing wrong with having realistic expectations while dreaming and preparing for the ultimate in outcomes. Only you can define your success. And if you put everything you have into something, I think you're always going to be okay with the result. The following is a quote from the Olympic.org website. The goal of the Olympic movement is to contribute to building a peaceful and better world by educating the youth through sport practice without discrimination of any kind and in the Olympic spirit which requires mutual understanding with the spirit of friendship, solidarity, and fair play. The Olympics is one of the most valuable, powerful brands in the world, and I hope that judo can stay connected to the Olympics for a long time to come, because I know that there's always that threat that judo one day wouldn't be part of the Olympic Games. My personal belief is that no matter the challenge, and there's always going to be ups and downs, but the Olympics will forever be part of our culture, and not just here in the United States, but around the world. I feel that through the teachings of Jigoro Kano and now through the support of the IJF, judo is leading the way when it comes to promoting sport values in the world. Now, although I'm a firm believer that sport in general can provide a way to learn the values that will create better people and better societies, 
Judo's definitely on the forefront of that endeavor. The lessons of Jigoro Kano and the Olympic values are closely aligned, and I'm not sure how many other sports can make that link. Judo as a sport doesn't garner the attention of a cage fight or an NBA basketball game, but if you can learn to teach the lessons of Jigoro Kano and the values of sport combined with the physical education benefits, you have the product that every parent in the world is looking for. They just don't know it yet. Thank you for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit JudoCast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.